Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. We are in Parshat Pikudei. We are in the last parsha of the book of Exodus this morning. So we are uh, finishing up the um, description of the uh, build, the actual building, because we got all the instructions for the Mishkan, but now we're getting the uh, erection, the actual uh, putting up of the Mishkan, the tabernacle. So we've been in the Mishkan for a while now. We've been studying that for a while now. You studied with Rabbi Sher last week, um, his take uh, on some of this. And so we're going to continue this morning um, with Ilana Pardes, with the, that that. Uh, work that I've been sharing with you, um, treating ancient Israel as a character. And she wrote a book um, called uh, The Biography of Ancient Israel, which you can't see in my camera, The Biography of Ancient Israel. So she wrote a piece that is actually a biography of this character, ancient Israel. Um, And so we've looked at the different life stages in in this character's life from birth to weaning in the desert to uh, to initiation at Sinai, right? This character, ancient Israel, being initiated into the tribe, into the rites and the secrets and the wisdom of the tribe at Sinai. Um, and now we're going to look at, and we looked at the golden calf. We looked at, right, the, the anxiety of, of this character being projected onto um, something that they're going to worship. Um, and so we've looked at that, and we're going to look now at the Mishkan, um, a little bit about um, her take on the Mishkan, which um, I find as interesting as all the other stuff she is, she's written. So that's where we're going um, this morning. So we're going to begin a little bit with the text about the Mishkan, but really I just want to, we're going to be talking about the Mishkan writ large. So we're going to look at the text that's assigned for this morning. Uh, but knowing that we're going to a broader conversation about Mishkan, and I invite you to share anything you want as we come to these closing texts about this whole um, tabernacle business. Here we go. <clears throat> All right, so we're talking about the aphod. We're talking about the, the clothing for the priests. The robe for the aphod was made of woven work of blue and purple. The opening of the robe in the middle of it was like the opening of a coat of mail, because everybody knows what that looks like, with a binding around the opening so that it would not tear. On the hem of the robe, they made pomegranates of blue, purple, and crimson yarns twisted. They also made bells of pure gold and attached the bells between the pomegranates all around the hem of the robe, between the pomegranates, a bell and a pomegranate, a bell and a pomegranate, all around the hem of the robe for officiating in, as Yudhe had commanded Moses. They made the tunics of fine linen of woven work for Aaron and his sons, and the headdress of fine linen and the decorated turbans of fine linen, and the linen breeches of fine twisted linen, and sashes of fine twisted linen, blue, purple, and crimson yarns done in embroidery as Yudhe had commanded Moses. They made the frontlet for the holy diadem of pure gold and incised upon it the seal inscription, Kodesh Ladonai, holy to Yudhe they attached to it a cord of blue to fix it upon the headdress above, as Yudhe had commanded Moses. Thus was completed all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting. The Israelites did so just as Yudhe had commanded Moses, so they did. Then they brought the tabernacle to Moshe 
with the tent and all its furnishings, its clasps, its planks, its bars, its posts, and its sockets, the covering of tanned ram skins, the covering of dolphin skins, and the curtain for the screen. The Ark of the Pact and its poles and the cover, the table and all its utensils and the bread of display, the pure lampstand, its lamps, lamps in due order, and all its fittings and the oil for lighting. The altar of gold, the oil for anointing, the aromatic incense, and the screen for the entrance of the tent. The copper altar with its copper grating, its poles and all its utensils, and the labor and its stand. The hangings of the enclosure, its posts and its sockets, the screen for the gate of the enclosure, its cords and its pegs, all the furnishings for the service of the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. The service vestments for officiating in the sanctuary, the sacral vestments of Aaron the priest, and the vestments of his son for priestly service, just as Yudhebuffet had commanded Moses, so the Israelites had done all the work. And when Moshe saw that they had performed all the tasks as Yudhebuffet had commanded, so they had done, Vayavarechotam Moshe, Moses blessed them. All right, and then we get the command of Adonai to say, on the first day of the first month, you shall set up the tabernacle of the tent of meeting, place there the ark of the pact, and screen off the ark with the curtain, and then bring everything in. So when is this being set up? When are they setting up the Mishkan? What is the day that it's actually supposed to be put up? It is the anniversary, right, of them uh, leaving Egypt. So it's put up on, essentially, if we're looking at ancient Israel as a character, and we're taking seriously her idea, Ilana Pardes' idea that this is the biography of a character, then we are having the Mishkan erected on the character's what? Birthday. 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 Exactly. So Birthday. we are, right, the, the Mishkan is, is essentially a gift that is given to the people on their birthday as, as a people, right? Because they are, they are born as a people when they come out of Egypt, when they come through those birthing waters, we talked about the blood on the doorposts, right? The bloody portal um, that they have to look at all night till they leave. Uh, and then the, the waters, of course, they are coming through the birthing waters. And so the Mishkan is set up on their birthday. And so um, this idea that the Mishkan um, actually is not for God, but is for the people. So... Um, how do we understand the Mishkan as a gift to the people? If we want to tie this to last time we learned together and tie it to the golden calf, talk to me about the impulse of the golden calf. What, what is that about for the people? What is making that calf about for them? Well, come on, juice. Nursing connection to their mom. Okay. So we, we've looked at Pardes's work about weaning and talking about missing mom missing the loving caretaker, right? And that God and Moshe are hanging on out on a mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. They feel abandoned. They feel like they've been left. So the calf is about, I want mommy. I want mommy back, right? I want something solid that I can look to, to let me know I'm not completely abandoned. Okay. So comfort. What else? Mark? Well, it's a repository. I think for, as you were saying earlier, for all kinds of anxieties, uh, um, quite many different anxieties, but it makes them very concrete and external. 
and uh, and therefore uh, more more psychologically manageable. So if it's if I can see it and touch it, I can deal with it more easily. Like it doesn't make it any more pleasant that it's going on, but there it's more manageable if it's manifest right out there. I can see it and I can touch it. Right. There's something else too, though it uh, it creates a division between um, the, uh, the the good and the bad um, through uh, through the projection of, of uh, anxiety, and uh, in that way, uh, in essence, uh, creates a sense of omnipotence for the people. So they're in control in a different way, right? They have some control. Love right. that. Okay, Lee said tactile. It's something they can actually touch, right? That that something mm-hmm. you can touch is different by definition. Like that we can en- engage with it tactily, it makes it different. Okay. And it serve too is to kind of hold them and collectively hold them together because they all contributed what they had to melt it, melt down the gold to to make the cap. And so it was a, it was a collective effort as well. And they were kind of feeling lost and unmoored and so it created a place for them to come together nice deb so the calf was a way for them to feel like they could contribute to its existence and they could come together for a project that that unified them Mm -hmm. great okay what else somebody else had their hand up mark did you want to say something yeah i I missed last week so this may be out of left field but I've been told and I've read that a number of the escaped Jews really missed whatever it was that they had in Egypt. And and they've got these leaders that are gone and they wanted a God they could see. So they convinced uh, Aaron to build them something which was more familiar to them. And they, they had lost their faith in a way in the invisible God, and they were looking for something more tangible and, frankly, more Egyptian. In- so, right. So we're talking about tactile, something they can see, something that's manifest, something that's material. Exactly. Yeah. That that's, what they're, that's what they're longing for. That's what they're looking for. And that's what they have Aaron make for them, right? right. So, so all of those instincts are there in the creation of the Egel Azahav, in the golden calf. What we have with the Mishkan... When God says, no, you can't have images, right? God and Moshe get very upset about this. And we, we, we talked last week about this reading, this time looking through Ilana Pardes' lens, why Moshe and, and God might have been so upset. But in general, we get it, that no representation is allowed. They just got told that. And already they've abrogated their agreement to do what God says, which is to not do what they just did. So... Everyone kind of agrees that's that's a big part of the issue. But look what happens, says Pardes. What does God do? God commands that they make a mishkan. And doesn't that mishkan meet just about every need we just expressed? Deb, you talked about a communal building project. What was the mishkan made out of? Everything the people brought. They contributed to it. They became a unit. They became a community when they had a communal building project, just like the Egel Hazahab. So the Mishkan is the anti-Egel, sort of, right? So Lee, you talked about tactile. We just got a description of the fabric that the priests are wearing. It's linen. 
it's twisted yarn. There's a pomegranate and a bell, so it makes a sound. And you can imagine touching those at the hem of the priest's robe. We can imagine touching what we just had described to us and the altar and the this and the that, right? We can imagine touching it. It's tactile. It's material. It's there. It's present. It's real. Is this sort of like when, you know, your mom doesn't let you get as the child uh, the phone or whatever and says, but I'll give you something really close to it. Very nice, Jody. I think that's exactly what's happening here. God says you can't have material representations of me. I don't care if you like that in Egypt. I don't care. You are now not Egyptian. You are now going to be Hebrews. You are now going to invent something else and a society based on different values than Egypt had. And if you're going to do that, you can't worship like Egypt did because you're not Egypt. You never were. You were trapped in Egypt. You thought you were Egyptian, but you weren't. You are the descendants of Abraham and Sarah who have a special arrangement with me. You need to remember who you are. You are having an identity crisis. I understand that, but too bad, right? So, right, you want as a teenager to go sow your oats and this is who you want to be. I'm not going to allow that as your parent because that's not who you are. And I know who you are and who this family is and who you, you now represent this family and the values of this family. And so, but I'm going to let you have something close, right? To what you want that is prohibited. Mark? You know, it, it seems to me that this, uh, this whole issue, of course, touches on many, many different things. But um, from a, the point of view of uh, development, I think it, it really, in a very important way, refers to a much earlier period of development it refers to a period of development um, when the transition is made by a very young infant from a sense of omnipotence and a sense almost of symbiosis with mother um, to a recognition that um, there is no symbiosis, that the infant is not omnipotent, that it does suffer anxiety and pain, and that it uh, then... uh, transfers or projects the sense of power onto the parent uh, and sees the parent as omnipotent and protective. Nice. And so I think, Mark, that's exactly the shift we're getting with you don't get to have the calf, right? The the pretending that you are one with, you know, Isis, you are one with mom, Um, as the suckling calf, if you want to go that route, you you don't get to pretend that anymore. I'm going to rip that away from you. I'm going to make sure, says God, you don't get to stay in the infant stage of that. You now have to become individuated, suffering all the anxiety that it means to individuate from the protective parent and being omnipotent over, right? Over that parent. And And you're going to have to recognize that you do not control all of that. God is going to remain invisible. But now there's going to be a Mishkan that represents the presence of the parent, but in a much, much more anxiety producing way. Because is God here? Is the divine presence here? 
Like, right, right. And are we doing everything right? Are we doing everything we're supposed to so that that presence rests in the Holy of Holies? Because if not, we are vulnerable. We are completely vulnerable in the middle of the desert with lots of, you know, neighboring folks with lots of big weapons. And right, we are incredibly vulnerable if God is not here. Right. And that is the point of the Mishkan, right? That God's presence dwells among the people because without that, they are toast. All right, Dana. Um, I was just going to say, after reading the portion today, you know, the Mishkan, the visuals, it was so beautiful. I was trying to imagine it, you know, the colors. And I also thought about Judy Ubik and her committee creating our synagogue. Uh, I mean, so even though it's replacing the presence of God, you know, an actual concrete concretization of God, when you read it and hear the Torah portion, you know, I get really good vibes of, you know, beautiful things. So I think it's replacing, but it's trying to do it in a kind way, in a very, um, you know, inviting way. All right. So I'm going to push it one step further. Not me. Ilana Pardes pushes it one step further. Not only are there these beautiful tapestries and garments and all of that, and the tent itself, and the golden this, and the golden that. What is in the Holy of Holies? What's in the holiest spot? The, the Torah. Torah. The what? On the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, which are in what? The Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant. All right. So the Ark of the Covenant is in the holiest of the holy spaces in the Mishkan, Inside that are the Ten Commandments, right? The, or the Ten Utterances, whatever we want to say about them, right? So that's at the center. What's on the Ark? The Kruvim. The Kruvim. All right. Aren't we supposed to have no representations of stuff going on? Of wh- Why Kruvim and not a calf? Why one type of, of beast and not another? So if there's no representation, people, there should be no representation, right? If there's no creatures allowed to be represented, what is going on with the Kruvim? And the Kruvim are also on the parochet. They're also on the curtain, separating the Holy of Holies from the rest of the Mishkan. There's a lot of Kruvim action going on. There's a lot of winged creature stuff going on in the Mishkan where there is no images allowed of animals or people. What up? Right. Judith, like the parent who says, because I said so. Okay. So here we go. This is to to Jody's point. This is where we're going to go. Judith, did you want to say something? Yes. I was thinking about how um, in, in building our synagogue, there were so many people involved and everybody had a say. So we were building our own art. It it was a, a total community effort. And I think I think we had a uh, an, a similar experience to perhaps building the golden calf, but with the rules in mind that uh, we were given. The ark, by the way, in our synagogue is movable. Right now, it's falling apart. I realize, but but it is movable. So there's so so many similarities between this passage and what happened in the building of Ki. So you're being kind, saying everyone had a say. I'm going to say yeah. everyone had an opinion. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> Two Jews, three opinions. Um, all right, Judy Alpert, did you unmute to speak? You got to unmute. I was going to say back then that basically 
um, there was limit setting done by Adonai. There, you, the people couldn't do just exa- what they wanted to do, when they wanted to do it, how they wanted to do it. It was very much in many ways like child raising. There are limits. There are instructions. And uh, in order to further develop, as I said in the chat, I wrote, um, there are instructions and how to build the Mishkan, what to include. And uh, just like children who may not understand why these limits are set at first, um, they are given nevertheless. And with maturity and with understanding and with time's passage, those who at first didn't yet understand come to understand with time, uh, come to understand the wisdom, which is may not be apparent right away. Okay, I want to I want to push and say, or they come to understand that parents are flawed. Uh-huh. And that parents place the rules in lots of crazy places because <laughs> the parents have their own stuff going on. And you can do this, but not that. You can wear a skirt that this short, but not that short. Um, right. Because not just because the parent has more wisdom and they finally grow up and realize that they grow up and realize their parent draws the line where the parent wants the line. And that's that's parents like and you have to deal with your parents being parents and being people and so i'm going to put that sacrilegious um thought out there rita you were talking about how uh the torah and the ten commandments were in the holy of holies but there's a little bit of the torah and the decorations as well i've heard a a legend, I suppose about pomegranates that with all the seeds in there it turns out there are the same number as of mitzvot yeah. Every pomegranate, I was told as a child, has 613 seeds. Right, exactly. Every pomegranate miraculously has 613 seeds for the 613 mitzvot. Yeah. Go count a pomegranate. Guess what? I don't want to burst anybody's bubble. Uh, but, right, but the pomegranate, like a sign of fruitfulness, it's one of the seven species of Israel. So a sign of fertility and, um, right, you open a pomegranate and what does it look like? Just saying. Mm-hmm. Just saying. Okay. Um, all right. Let's go. I want to show you. Uh, Just wondering, did you ever count? Because now I'm compelled. Right? Now, go, go count, Jody. I want you to tell me. I want you to tell me what you find. Um, okay. Let's go. Uh, okay. So we're going to look at Pardes. Um, all right. <clears throat> so much like the golden calf, bottom of this page where my cursor is, much like the golden calf, the Kruvim pose a clear violation of the prohibition against images. They are made of gold. Here, too, the people's collected jewelry is the source of gold, of beaten work, and represent visually that which is in heaven above, meaning birds because they've got big wings, and on the earth beneath, human beings, right? And so it's a combination. The the Kruvim are combinations of winged things and things walking around on earth, both of which are forbidden. The law, in other words, is more pliable than it may first seem. Come down to the next uh, highlight. God is capable of breaking the law. At this point, he does so in response to the people's request for images. Whoa, okay, people. What did Pardes just say? That's like, that's incredible. Pardes says God gives the prohibition, 
But the people want images. They clearly need them because they went and made the golden calf, which was a disaster, right? All these people get killed for it. So what does God do in giving them the Mishkan? Does God give them an, a no representation material reality? No. God gives them the law and then God breaks the law. So it's not that the law is inviolable. It's that do as I say, not as I do. Or you could say God is flexible and compassionate. Oh, thank you, Bert, for that, that wonderful reading. Say, or you could say that. You could say that. But, Rabbi, but think about Rabbi, it. It's a little, it's more than a little inconsistent. Is it, right? also, is it, is it also a transitional object mm-hmm. to help the people in the adjustment to this tremendous separation? Right. So thank you. Here are my psychologists talking up. So, right. So exactly. Uh, but it, it's so funny to me, though, that Pardes like points out that God is the one who lays down the you can't have. OK, but, you know, for this one time, because you're going to the doctor and you're going to get shots and that's going to hurt. I'll let you have some sugar. Right. With corn syrup and high fructose corn syrup. Right. So no high fructose corn syrup in this house. You are not to eat it. This was this comes from my experience. Um, you can't have it. Don't even ask for it in the grocery store. It's not going to happen. However much you whine, however much you cry, Eliana Faye, don't even think about it. It's not going to happen until we have to go to the doctor and I have to hold you while they stab you on two sides. For that, you get high fructose corn syrup, red dye number four, and anything else that I can think of in the moment that will calm you, to Richard's point, that will calm you and therefore make my anxiety less. That's a great point. parent's suffering less because when the child suffers, what by definition happens for the parent? So is is this just about God giving Israel a transitional object because God is so wise and so mature or kind, as Bert wants to say, and understanding and compassionate, or is God giving the people something to calm them because God can't stand to watch the people's anxiety. God can't watch them suffer. And as a parent says, okay, you can't have any images, but on the very inside, behind the curtain, where nobody can see it, shh, don't tell mom, but what's in the secret, secret, secret cupboard? Imagery that y'all really, really want, and I've told you you're not allowed to have. So I, I really love this idea that God is breaking God's own rules. Um, and you can fill in the blank about, okay, so why are those rules in place? Because like Judy said, because this is the mature way to worship. This is past Egypt. This is past materialism. This is past projection, you know, onto something concrete. You don't get to have that because you're going to have to grow up and it's an invisible God, blah, 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 blah. And yet, <laughs> right? And yet God allows them the Mishkan. Not only allows them, God commands them to build the the exact thing that God has just forbidden and puts in there the Kruvian. So unless we think, oh no, this is pointing to something invisible, uh-uh. We have winged things and things that walk on the earth combined. It is very much imagery that is um, elsewhere absolutely forbidden. All right, uh, let's go back. 
She says the Kruvim are not set apart on a pedestal, but rather serve as the guardians of the word, be it the voice from above or the tablets below. Their long protective wings shield, and in Hebrew, sochachim, the divine texts underlining their sacredness. Writing in the Mishkan blends with and is enhanced by the sites that surround it. All right, listen to what she's saying here. It took me a while <laughs> to get it. The Kruvim are not something separate from what they're now supposed to worship, which is the values and ideals represented by the word, right? They're supposed to move from a representation of God to the teachings of God. That's the big shift from idolatry to monotheism, right? The big shift is not how many gods you have, one instead of 10. That's not the shift. The shift is you don't represent the God physically in your space, Rather, what is God represented by in the holy, 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 holy space? Represented by teaching how to live, how to build a society based in justice, equity, compassion, forgiveness, transformation, freedom, all those things. But, says Pardes, where are the Kruvim? They're not at the entrance. And the word is back in the holy of holies. Ah, 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 ah. The Kruvim are so chachim. They are covering the word. They're right there at the teaching, right? The the longing for that material representation of things on earth, the cow God, the bull God, the lion God, the eagle God, that longing is right there above the word, above this big shift that these people are supposed to make. And then she talks about the breastplate of the priest with all of the names of Israel engraved on each of the stones, the engraved names captured the splendor of the titles bestowed on Israel in the opening scene. These are glamorous and precious stones. These artful signets, which serve as a memorial of the covenant, take part in the intimate exchange of the high priest with God, right? Because the high priest wears this to go into the Holy of Holies, right? And into the Mishkan to serve. The priest who covers his loins with the aphod and wears the 12 stones on his heart represents the nation as a whole on entering the Holy of Holies. What the breastplate and the aphod prove is that words and images need not be set apart. They can shed light on each other. Right? Love this. That the Mishkan is actually a compromise between the desire for imagery And the need to shift to not having imagery be primary, but be secondary, not forbidden the way it sounds like on Sinai, because God God turns around and breaches God's own forbidding of it, because it's really supposed to be a middle ground. Let the word and the ideals and the values shed light on images and let images help enhance our understanding of of those values. We can't do without them, and we don't. Like Judah said, look at our sanctuary, look at a Torah with its breastplate, right? With all of its ornate stuff, with its crowns. We put silver all over the Sefer Torah, people. We did not leave imagery. 
We did not leave silver and gold and precious stones. We now put it on the word. That's the new paradigm. Not no imagery. Imagery to highlight the word and let the word highlight the imagery. Okay? All right, let's look at what she shifts to now. So Judith alluded to what she's saying here when Judith said everyone had a voice in what the the sanctuary at KI would look like. I'm going to argue they had an opinion and expressed it loudly because you have to choose for one and against another. Not, yeah, yeah, maybe it's informed by everybody's opinion, whatever. But really, really, people had to fight (laughs) for their vision of what it would look like. So she says, the sacred knowledge of the community is not a fixed corpus, the invention of a select circle, but rather the product of extensive negotiations between different socio-ideological groups, different beliefs, and different dreams, right? Art is not only a matter of competence or means It must involve a willing gesture to contact the divine. Remember, everyone involved in making the Mishkan has to be uh, Nadiv Lev, voluntary of heart. It couldn't be forced, right? Everyone had to give out of a voluntary contribution. So it must involve a willing gesture to contact the divine. That is internal readiness to receive divine wisdom. Only those whose heart is open may take part in the sacred building of God's sanctuary, the heart of the community. Now watch this jump. The making of the sanctuary seems to mirror the making of the biblical text. What does she mean? The Bible, as biblical scholarship has taught us, and as we've talked about in this Chavruta for how long? 12 years now? The Bible, as biblical scholarship has taught us, is most likely a patchwork of diverse sources brought together. It is, as Robert Alter shows in his remarkable discussion of the art of biblical narrative, an artistic patchwork, a case of composite artistry that required sensitive editing of different traditions. The tabernacle makes visible the ways in which composite and collective artistry must be carried out a leading team, and numerous contributors from all walks of life. So she's taking this one step further. The idea that Judith talked about with our committee coming together to design our sanctuary, lots of different opinions, lots of different tastes, lots of different expressions of what should happen, what should be, what should it look like? No, it shouldn't. Yes, it should. Sort of. Maybe a combination. Maybe three quarters this and a quarter that. Right. That is a major negotiation when you're building a synagogue. Who here would want to be on that committee? <laughs> Judith is the only one. Oh, and Len- no, Linda. And Shelly. Oh, my and, God. And we were on the committee. Glutton for punishment. Um, actually, I think we did get all the opinions. And we had asked at the beginning of the whole process in meetings of the entire congregation, those who chose to come, what their requirements were, what they wanted to see and didn't want to see. And we stuck to that in our decision-making as much as humanly possible. Our architect also gave another point of view, which mm-hmm. enlightened the opinion of the congregation. Fortunately, they went along with most of what he said. But it was definitely a source of rancor at times, and it was never resolved. But 
that's the way it is with a group of people. And I'm thinking... It was resolved in that there is a sanctuary. Yes. And and there's probably still some, why did we ever do that? All right. So I want to stop you there. So yes, thank you. That's a beautiful segue, Judith. (laughs) It is what it is. There was a lot of negotiation. And eventually you have a sanctuary. People can walk in and go, I still hate it that they put those stars over there. I hated it from the beginning. I hate it now. And I'll hate it forever. And my grandchildren will hate it because I will teach them to hate it. Right. So- Right, they're there. Everyone has their feelings, but there is a sanctuary that was negotiated out of the architect. We have God, the architect of the Mishkan, but then we have Bitzalel and Aholiab, who, out of their chokhmat lev, out of their wisdom of the heart, render God's instructions. However, they render them. It just says out of these colors. It doesn't say what it looks like when it's woven. Do you know what I mean? Like, it just says, make it out of crimson, blue, blah, 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 yarn. It doesn't say, and here's what the woof will look like. And here's what the warp will look like. That was left up to human ingenuity. So it, the architect, they have their opinion. <clears throat> then you have the people that are working on it, the professionals. Then you have the people who just have an opinion about it because this is a Jewish story. So there's going to be a lot of that, right? So there's a negotiation to make the Mishkan. What Pardes is saying is that's the Torah. That's the Torah, people. It is a compilation of different socio-ideological positions, experiences, myths, stories, history, and it had to be negotiated what made it in, what didn't make it in, what got highlighted, what got chopped out, what got changed, what got mutated, what, right, what got developed, what got um, changed in a way that people might not have even recognized anymore and say, wait a minute, this is not our story. It was negotiated. We can imagine there was as much, if not more, passion and opinions going into the negotiated text that we have that we continue to have our opinions about. And, and Bert took it beautifully to the next stage. That's what the Talmud is. What is the Talmud? The Talmud is the Mishnah, the law, and all of the rabbinic arguments about the law. Generations of arguing about what that law means. That's our next sacred text after Torah, is the Talmud. A bunch of people arguing about what the text in the middle of the page actually means. This is paradigmatically Jewish. This idea, there is no dogma, people. That's not Judaism. That's not the Jewish people. Here's what we do. Here's what we say, even though that's what we sometimes think. We think it's here's what you do. Here's what you follow. Here's the regimen right from the get-go. It's like, no, God undercuts that with some other thing being exactly antithetical to that on the very next page. That's Jewish. That God breaks God's own law is Jewish. Here's the law, says God, and then immediately breaks it. Because we're people and God understands or whatever, right? It's a, it's a transitional whatever. They need it. Okay, so I will break my own law. That is, that's the example par excellence of Judaism. We project it onto God, right? It is so Jewish that we make the Jewish God a God that gives the law and then breaks it the very next page. Make Kruvim. 
in the Mishkan, you people who are not allowed to have any images. That is what happened with the Torah text, that it is negotiated. We continue to argue with so many of these texts because we're Jews. This is what we do. This is our sacred and holy engagement is to say, not so much that one. Right, this one, oh my God, that is gorgeous. That that sings to me. Oh my God, it's so inspiring. I want to write it on my wall. I'm going to frame it. Oh my God, this is fantastic. Oh my, what is up with that? <laughs> that cannot be part of the tradition. Who the heck put that in there, right? Like, absolutely not. We do not hold with that. Absolutely not, right? We do the opposite, Dafka. This is the Jewish experience all the way back, says Pardes, to the building of the Mishkan. The Mishkan is the physical material representation of exactly what we do. And, and by the way, the authors had already written the text that retroject an imagination of the Mishkan. So don't think she's saying she's reading in our experience later to the Mishkan. Uh-uh. The Mishkan story was written by people who already had to negotiate which stories go in and which get left out. The Mishkan is made up by people who already did this process, right? So they're, they're already engaged in it. And now they got to even argue, does the Mishkan go in? Does it go out? How many chapters of Mishkan description? How many get left out, <laughs> right? Like, so I don't know what I'm trying to say. Like the people who actually had argued about texts in which are holy and which aren't and which are relevant and which aren't are the people who wrote the text of the Mishkan. And it is the visual representation. You'll never walk into KI and look around the sanctuary the same way, I hope, or any sanctuary you go into, right? You walk in and go, right, right? It's a negotiation of a bunch of people's opinions, a bunch of people's tastes, because isn't that what community is? Community, when it works, is a dialogue and an argument and a symphony sometimes, right? And we as the Jewish people believe all of that is sacred. All of that negotiation, all of that arguing, all of the difference of opinion, one is not better than the other. One is just going to win in the end because that's how we do it. We don't say it's the one that's right. How does Jewish law decide, Bert Kleinman, how does Jewish law decide which opinion it becomes Jewish law? Majority. The majority, period. The majority. It doesn't say the majority is right, ever. And what's recorded right next to the majority opinion that becomes law? The minority opinion. Why? Because next week, Russia may invade Ukraine and the whole thing gets turned upside down. And now the minority opinion becomes the majority and by definition becomes the law. So this opinion is right. It's that this is the majority. This is what's going to happen. And we'll see. Tomorrow, we'll see. Judah, one one more final thing. We had one architect, very famous architect, who wanted to design our synagogue, and he wanted to be Yud Hey Vav Hey. Period. And we said, not our congregation. Al's not going to fly with the Jews. No. (laughs) And he's Jewish. He should have known it, right? (laughs) He got an education. Shelley, did you have your hand up? I was going to say, and and uh, the argument continues with the Siddur. Correct. In different communities and different right. denominations. You know, we tend to think that the prayer book is the prayer book, and somehow it came down from Sinai. 
but there have been arguments and changes. I mean, look at the Reconstructionist prayer book, which ends up having multiple versions of the same prayer. And which was, which was burned by the Orthodox in 45. Right. Burned in the streets. Our prayer book was burned in the streets by and, Jews. And even Orthodox, the Orthodox Ashkenazic prayer book and the Orthodox Sephardic prayer book are different. Right. So somebody who's coming to the women's retreat, remind me to quote this um, when we talk about the text we're going to study on Saturday. Because we're studying a text that is exactly reflective of Bert's point about the Sidor. So remind me, Lee Sultan, remind me. Shelley? I was just going to say that one of the, on Judy's point about input from the congregation, one of the best parts was when we did the tours before we finished and people would walk around and say, oh, that was my idea. Right. 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 All right. So I want to look at, um, this is Rabbi Aaron Lieb Smokler. And she is bringing the Sfat Emet, Rabbi Yehuda Leib of Ger, the Gera Rebbe, tying the golden calf to the Mishkan in a really beautiful way. And so she's going to quote uh, the Talmud here, Avodah the Talmud tractate dealing with uh, idolatry. The Amar Rabbi Yeshua Ben Levi, Lo asu Yisrael eta ergel ela litain pitachon peh libaalei tshuva. The the only reason, says Rabbi Yeshua, that the uh, that the uh, Jewish people made the golden calf was in order to give an opening for people who were doing tshuva. How do we know this? And so they turn to Deuteronomy, because remember, the, the game is to take sentences from all over Torah, because it's all revealed from God. It's all God's truth. So you can pick from wherever you want to prove something somewhere else, because that's the rabbinic uh, sandbox that we're playing in. So what do they do? They're very clever. And they look at Deuteronomy, where it says, who would give that they had such a heart as this always to fear me? Uh, and keep all my commandments that it might be good for them and with their children forever. So this is proof that they have such a heart to keep the commandments. That's the whole reason for the Egel is for people to return to keeping the commandments. So in Avodazara, it also says the Israelites were only... Um, the only reason this business was appropriate for them at all, the business of the golden calf, was in order to teach about repentance. What? Perusha lehodia lekol bar tshuva shelo yenofel biyoter be'enav. That no, it's to teach everybody that you cannot, that no one can fall past a certain point uh, with the divine. But you can't fall too much in God's eyes, right? Um, that 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 you can't ever fall in the divine sight too far that Chuva can't restore you to your original position. This is the whole point of the golden calf, says two places in the Talmud. Don't think this, this was a huge sin and it took the people away from God and what God wants, God forbid, the golden calf was actually a way for us to realize that whenever we sin, we can always return. That's the whole point of the golden calf. 
And here's this beautiful teaching from the Svar Emet. Ukmochen achar yom kipurim shehu yom slicha umechila nitan mitzvat sukkah. Look at this beautiful teaching. That after Yom Kippur, the day of penitence and forgiveness, what's the first mitzvah we do after Yom Kippur? We build the sukkah, which is the resting of the shechinah in the mishkan or in the temple. It's offered to strengthen all of us who did shuva on Yom Kippur to know that we are worthy of the divine dwelling among us. How beautiful is that, right? What do we do right after Yom Kippur? We build a mishkan. We build a sukkah. Evidence of God's presence among us that we are close to God. We move out of our houses. We move close to God right under the sky. We can see the stars. We understand we're dependent only on the divine, not on our concrete bunkers that we think are going to keep us safe, right? Because that's, we, we look up and realize that we are worthy of the divine presence. <clears throat> All right. So I love this idea expressed in the Talmud that that the whole point of the golden calf was to say, this is going to be eternally the relationship between us and God. We are going to screw up. And the whole point was to know that we can come back and to know that God gave us after the Egel Azahav, after the golden calf, what does God command us to make the Mishkan? Immediately after the biggest sin they could do, what does God say? Build me a mishkan b'shachanti b'tocham, that I might dwell among them. Meaning, they are worthy of my dwelling among them, even having sinned this greatly. I love that teaching. I really love that teaching. Now, then there's this. (laughs) So then there's this table in the Kremlin, (laughs) right? Which is all about what? Grandeur? Yes. The Mishkan is all about grandeur and curtains and beauty and gold and wealth. <clears throat> yes, which is expressive of the Shachanti Betocham, that I might dwell in them, that we might be close. What does this kind of grandeur and gold and wealth, what is it expressive of? Dafka, it's expressive of distance because it can be used either way. Beauty, grandeur, Wealth, it can all be made to manifest a sense of the divine presence being close and therefore us being unified in that, in living lives and building communities of holiness. Or it can be this <clears throat> incredibly distancing. Think Trump Tower, right? You, I am bigger than you. I'm, it's all bigger than you. You are nothing. Um, and here I am accepting you in my presence, but don't think it means we're close. Right. Don't think it means anything other than I have a table that's big enough to keep you way over there. Um, So this is a poem written this week by the poet and teacher, uh, spiritual teacher, David White. Um, There is no table long enough. Elena Allen, would you unmute and read if you're still here? There is no table long enough. One man's unspoken inner edge of darkness unconfronted and untransformed, sitting far away in his own fear, like someone looking through the wrong end of a child's telescope, like someone sitting at the end of an absurdly lengthened table, holds his intimate circle of fear of death and torture, threatens their families, poisons their lives along with his enemies, sews everyone into the straitjacket of immobile fear, 
then carefully tailors a uniform of death for every single one of his bulleted, bullied young men to wear. May we see then in this allegory, as we too in this time sit so far away, the simple way of an individual life, no matter how imprisoned, transformed by generosity, saves so many lives in the future. May we take the time while we confront this fear now on the outside with necessity and courageous physical action to preempt any future evil by bringing every hidden edge into the light, by bringing our inner troubles into the conversation where heads are allowed to lean close to one another at a table shortened to the point of mutual understanding. There is no table long enough to keep us from our own unspoken darkness. But thanks be to God and every power beyond us, there is no table long enough to hold the riches of darkness transformed, to hold the wine raised and the bread consumed, to hold every item of our shared bounty brought from every field of our endeavor in a promised future that despite ourselves will always be destined to forgiveness. Wow. Thank you. If that ain't the Mishkan, I don't know what is. Isn't that what we're supposed to build? Bring in from the field of our endeavors, bringing it to a table shortened uh, by understanding. uh, And it's to bring us together in its beauty and in its diversity. um, Because when we do that and contribute and bring it all into the light, um, then, then that, that is acknowledging that despite all of it, the world is tipped towards forgiveness uh, and that we need to be about the work of making so that the future is forgiven in some ways, our own weaknesses and our own violent tendencies um, that we might create Yemea Mashiach, that we might bring about ourselves the messianic age. So may it be speedily and in our day. Shabbat Shalom. You've been listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.